The theme of the book of Romans is justification by faith. But before Paul goes into that in detail, he first wants to establish man's sin, man's need, the necessity for salvation. And he does that in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, concluding that every man stands before God without excuse. And in the passage we looked at last week, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, Paul focused on the Gentile world. He tells us that we knew the truth because of creation, but we repressed it. And then we rejected it by not honoring God or giving thanks. And then eventually we replaced it by turning to idolatry. And God gave us over to lust and perversion and depravity. And I can just imagine the Jewish reader crying amen at the end of chapter 1. He's probably standing and applauding. He's saying, give it to him, give, him to it, give it to them, God. I'll get it out. The Jewish reader would say, the Gentiles are guilty. Those pagans are disgusting. Those heathens deserve the wrath of God. It's kind of the attitude of Jonah when he went to Nineveh. You remember, he went through Nineveh and he said, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And then he went out east of the city on a hill hoping to see the fireworks. And when he didn't see the fireworks, he pouted. You see, the Jewish mentality was those Gentiles deserve the wrath of God, but I'm not like that. I believe in God. I honor God. I give thanks to God. I'm not an idolater. I'm not a pervert. I haven't slid into the pit of depravity. I'm okay. And so the Jewish reader would be nodding in agreement at the end of chapter 1. And so when we come to chapter 2, Paul addresses the Jew. Now we find out that specifically in verse 17 because he says, but if you bear the name Jew. And he's not just speaking to Jews in general, he's speaking to self-righteous Jews. Because notice verse 17, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and he goes on to talk about all the things that they brag about, but then verse 21 says, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? He's speaking to self-righteous Jews. Now the counterpart to the self-righteous Jew today would be the religious moralist. That's the person who says, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, I'm a member of a church, I live by the golden rule, I'm not like those people in chapter 1, they deserve judgment, I don't, God is angry at them, but he's not angry at me. Well, that's who Paul comes after in chapter 2. And he seems to assume that most of his readers will fall into this category. Because if you notice the pronouns, back in chapter 1 and verse 20, he says, so that they are without excuse. When he comes to chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, therefore, you are without excuse. Who? Every man of you who passes judgment. Every one of you who, when you listen to the catalog of sins in chapter 1, find yourself pointing a condemning finger at someone else, Paul says, put down your hand because you also are without excuse. Why? He goes on to say, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same 
things. You ever heard it said when you point your finger at someone else, you have three pointing back at you? Well, that's what Paul says here. He says, put down your hand, you're just as guilty because you're doing the very same things. And he's going to get to those things when we get to chapter 2 and verse 17, where he really assails the Jews. But first of all, in verses 1 to 16, he lays down the principles for judgment. God's principles for judgment. He lays them down in verses 1 to 16, and then he takes them and he drives them through the heart of the Jewish reader. So in verses 1 to 16, I want us to pick out four principles of God's judgment. First, God's judgment is according to truth in verses 1 to 3. Notice verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Or literally it says the judgment of God is according to truth. God's judgment is always based on facts. It's always based on reality. God never goes by appearance. He never listens to hearsay. He doesn't need to bring in any witnesses. He doesn't need a jury. His judgment is based on truth because he's got all the facts. And Paul says in verse 2, we know that. In fact, notice verse 2. He says, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth upon those who practice such things. See, we know that's true when it applies to somebody else. We understand that God rightly judges whenever that judgment is aimed at somebody else. But where's our blind spot? Our blind spot is always me. And so he says in verse 3, And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, let's get honest this morning. Judging others is something we all enjoy, right? I mean, it's a fun sport. It, it sort of feeds our self-righteousness. We love to put on the robe and grab the gavel and judge other people. But Paul tells us that when we do that, whenever we do that, we are deceiving ourselves. And he really says we're doing that in two ways. First of all, you only think you're judging others. In reality, you are condemning yourself. First way you deceive yourself is that you only think you're judging others. Look at verse 1 again. He says at the end of that verse, in that you judge another, you condemn yourself because you're doing the same things. You see, the prerequisite for judging another person is that I first have to accept a standard. A person who accepts no standards, a person who recognizes no right and wrong, a person who acknowledges no laws, has no basis to judge other people. So whenever you judge someone else, you are accepting a standard. You are essentially saying, that person is not meeting the standard. And Paul is simply saying that the same standard that you use to judge another person applies to you. And if you are honest, you will have to admit that you don't live perfectly by anybody's standard, even your own. So Paul says, when you establish a standard, use it to judge someone else, you are really condemning yourself. 
Because that same standard that condemns them condemns you. In fact, Jesus said something very interesting in Matthew 7, 2. He said, in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. When you harshly judge others, in reality, you are harshly condemning yourself. In fact, one of the ironies of this is that we tend to judge in other people what we dislike most about ourselves. You ever notice this? If you've got a problem with pride, you tend to be critical of the person who's filled with pride. If you've got a problem with laziness, you tend to be critical of lazy people. That's just our nature. When we start to judge others, our tendency is to judge the things in them that we have a problem with. So when you see someone who is reacting very critically to a certain sin, there's a pretty good suspicion that that's coming out of the fact that you have a guilt about that same sin. A number of years ago when television evangelist Jim Baker was front page news, I watched uh, Nightline and Ted Koppel had uh, an interview with Jimmy Swaggart. And Swaggart was asked to give his opinion of Jim Baker and the PTL empire. And Jimmy Swaggart was very judgmental. In fact, he called Jim Baker a cancer in the body of Christ. It wasn't very long after that till Jimmy Swaggart was in the news. And it came to light that he had been visiting prostitutes. And it had been going on for quite some time. In fact, it went back to the time when he called Jim Baker a cancer on the body of Christ. Now, you would think that someone who was involved in the same kind of sin would be a little more charitable toward someone else. You would expect Jim Swaggart to say, well, Jim Baker is having a tough time right now, but I'm praying for him that God will bring him back into line. But he didn't do that. And neither do we. Because we tend to judge in others what we're guilty of ourselves. And Paul says, when you're pointing the finger at them, you're actually condemning yourself. Let me read you a political speech and see if you can guess who said this. This administration of the United States has proved that it is utterly incapable of cleaning out the corruption which has completely eroded it and reestablishing the confidence and faith of the people in the morality and honesty of our government employees. The investigations which have been conducted to date have only scratched the surface. For every case that is exposed, there are ten which are successfully covered up. And even the, then, this administration will go down in history as the scandal-a-day administration. It is typical of the moral standards of this administration that when they are caught red-handed with payoff money in their bank accounts, the, the best defense that they can give is that they won the money in a poker game, a crap game, or by hitting the daily double. A new class of royalty has been created in the United States. And its princes of privileges and payoffs include the racketeers who get concessions on their income tax cases, the insiders who get favored treatment on government contracts, the influence peddlers with keys to the White House, and the government employee who uses his position to feather his nest. The great tragedy, however, is not that corruption exists, 
but that it is defended and condoned by the president and other high administration officials. We have had corruption defended by those in high places. If they won't recognize or admit that corruption exists, how can we expect them to clean it up? That speech was made in the Hotel Statler in the city of Boston in 1951. It was an attack on the administration of President Harry S. Truman by Richard M. Nixon. You see, his own standard came back to condemn him. And so the first way you deceive yourself is you only think you're judging others. You're really condemning yourself. And then the second way you condemn yourself is you only think you're going to escape. You see verse 3? He says, And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment, that you will escape the judgment of God? You know, one of the reasons we enjoy judging other people is it, because it makes us feel good. It makes us, if I can judge you, then it makes me feel superior. But you know, there's really faulty logic to that. Let, let's assume that both of us owe money to the same person. I owe 50000 you owe 100000 If I say, since you're in more debt than I am, therefore, I'm debt-free, does that make sense? No. And it doesn't make sense when I say, his sin is worse than mine, therefore, I have no sin. In fact, you know which sin it was that Jesus attacked more often and more severely? and more directly than any other. It wasn't adultery. It wasn't taking drugs. It wasn't watching television. It was the sin of self-righteousness. That was the sin of the Pharisees. In fact, that's the only sin that I can find in the Bible that we're told that made Jesus angry. The sin of self-righteousness. And I've said it before, we are all recovering Pharisees. We all tend toward self-righteousness. I always see sin more clearly in your life than I do in my life. See, when it comes to our own sin, we tend to relabel it. You ever do this? I'm not gossiping, I'm just sharing a concern. I'm not being critical, I'm just being discerning. I'm not lazy, I'm mellow. I'm not being negative, I'm just being realistic. I'm not unreliable, I'm flexible. And then we conveniently forget our own sin. You see, I can usually remember exactly what you did against me. But I can't so readily remember what it was that I did against you. You see, when some people say they have a clear conscience, what they're really saying is that they have a poor memory. Paul says, when you judge others, you are condemning yourself. Now granted, we can get real good at concealing our sins. We don't wear our sins on our sleeves. We're not involved in necessarily the external kind of perversion that we read in chapter 1. But Jesus said in his day to the Jewish leaders in Matthew 23, 27, you are whitewashed tombs. 
which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Pretty strong words. As Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount, your murder may not be done with a knife, but it's done with your tongue. And your adultery may not happen in a cheap hotel room, but it happens in your heart. And you're just as guilty. And Paul says you will not escape the judgment of God. You may escape man's judgment. In fact, you may even receive man's praise. But you won't escape God's judgment. Because God judges according to truth. He knows all the facts. And so no matter how much you fool yourself, no matter how much you may fool others, you're an open book to God. And your judgment is just as certain as the depraved pervert. In fact, if you'll notice verse 1, he says in verse 1, there's no excuse. And then when you get to verse 3, he says there's no escape. First of all, God judges according to truth. Second principle about his judgment is that he judges according to degrees in verses 4 and 5. Notice verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Now, God has not only been kind to the Jewish people, he has been rich in kindness. He chose them as his special nation. He watched over them. He gave them great kings. He gave them great prophets. He finally gave them the Messiah. And when they responded in waywardness and unthankfulness, God was kind and he was patient. And Paul tells us why he did that. Why was God kind and patient to the Jewish people? And the answer is to lead you to repentance, to cause you to turn around, to cause you to change. But instead, he says, you have thought about it lightly. You have taken it for granted. You have despised it. In response to the Gentile world in chapter 1, it says God gave them over. In response to the Jews in chapter 2, it says they received God's kindness. And their conclusion was, we must be pleasing to God. God must be satisfied with me. I deserve this privilege that I'm enjoying. And rather than leading him to repentance, it led him to pride and arrogance and stubbornness. And if the Gentile who didn't have the same degree of God's kindness is a condemned sinner, where does that leave the Jew who had all this kindness and treated it with contempt? Well, the answer is in verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul says every minute, every day, every week that you refuse to respond to the kindness of God, you are adding to the storehouse of God's wrath that will one day be poured out on you. Sometimes we sing, count your blessings. Well, if your blessings are not leading you to repentance, then those blessings are going to count against you. 
If God's kindness is not leading you to repentance, it's just adding to the weight and fury of the wrath to come. You know, we have a tendency to rate sins. And we typically rate sins as worse because they, they break our human laws. But if there's one sin that stands out as worse than any other, if there's one sin that stands out because it's blacker than any other sin, it has to be the sin of despising the riches of God's kindness. And let me add this. Along with the unrepentant Jew, the unrepentant religious moralist who has received so much kindness in our country today is in for a surprise on Judgment Day. In fact, that's implied in the wording here. He calls it the day of wrath and he calls it the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That word means the unveiling of the righteous judgment of God. You see, it's not necessarily the judgment that they expect. If you ask the majority of church people today in the United States what's going to happen on the day of judgment, they will say things like, God will probably smile benignly at the things I've done. I think God will probably grade on a curve. My God would never condemn a human being for occasional moral misfortunes. My God would never condemn a human being for occasional lapses in judgment. And Paul lets us know that there are going to be some surprise faces on that day of judgment. When they discover that greater privilege did not mean that God was satisfied. Greater privilege was given to bring you to repentance. And where there is no repentance, greater privilege means greater judgment. God will judge according to degrees. And then the third principle, God will judge according to deeds in verses 6 to 10. Notice verse 6. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. You see, judgment in the future will not be based on what you imagine yourself to be. It will be based on exactly who you are as determined by what you do. God's judgment is based on your deeds. And in verses 7 to 10, he lays out for us the fact that there are only two kinds of people doing two kinds of deeds with two kinds of rewards. Notice as I read them, verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There are only two kinds of people, and they're not Jew and Gentile. These two kinds of people come out of both of those groups. And the two kinds of people he mentions are those who seek glory and honor and immortality and those who seek selfish ambitions. And then there are only two kinds of deeds, those who do good and those who do evil, those who are obeying the truth and those who are obeying unrighteousness. And then there are only two kinds of rewards, glory, honor, and peace, and eternal life, and tribulation and distress and wrath. And God makes that determination on the basis of deeds. You say, well, wait a minute, Dan. Is he saying that we're saved by works? No. 
I know he's not saying that because when we get to the next chapter, he tells us you can't be saved by works. Chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. You say, well, then what is he saying here? Well, you have to remember, he is not giving here the method of justification in chapter 2. He is giving the principles for judgment. And when God judges, he always judges according to deeds. In Revelation chapter 20, where it describes the great white throne judgment, it says the dead, the great and the small, will stand before him. And it says they will be judged according to their deeds. Even the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says each of us will stand before the Lord Jesus and be recompensed for his deeds that he did in the body, whether good or bad. God always judges according to deeds. See, God is going to judge you on the basis of what you have done, done, not what you intended to do. You say, well, what if I don't have any works? What if I don't have any deeds? Well, if you don't have any works, then you're not saved. Because James chapter 2 says, faith without works is dead. And so he's talking here about God's judgment. What's implied in these verses is what he's going to say later, and that is, you have to have faith. It's implied. Because apart from faith, you could never do these deeds. Because when we come to chapter 3 and verse 10, he's going to say there is none righteous, there is none who does good. If you have to stand before God on your own righteousness, you will fall short. But God's judgment is always based on deeds. And then fourthly, God's judgment is without partiality in verses 11 to 16. Notice verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. You know, the Jew is really hoping for some partiality. He is sort of depending on God to cut him a deal. And Paul says there's no partiality. And that thought really begins back in verses 9 and 10, which he concludes by saying, the Jew first and also of the Greek. Judgment will be based on deeds, and it doesn't really matter if you're Jew or Gentile. You know, the, the only advantage the Jew's going to have in the day of judgment is that he's going to get to go first. And that's not a great advantage. And, of course, the thing that the Jew would depend on to bring him some partiality would be the law. And so he says in verse 12, <coughs> excuse me, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about the pagans. All who don't have the law will perish without the law. You know, one of the most commonly asked questions I get is, are those who have never heard the gospel lost and the foundation of that question the the foundational answer is you have to realize that our God is fair and the Bible tells us from cover to cover that his judgments are just but if I answer that question specifically chapter 1 verse 20 says because of what God has revealed in creation they are without excuse and chapter 2, verse 12 says, All who have sinned without the law will also, what? Perish. All who have sinned, even if you don't have the revelation, even if you don't have the law, you will perish. If people who have never heard the gospel are not lost, then we need to bring all our missionaries home because they're already okay. The Bible doesn't tell us that. 
Every man who has sinned, even if he doesn't have the same revelation someone else has, he will perish. And then he turns his attention to the Jews at the end of verse 12. And he says, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. All the Jews who have sinned, even though they have the law, will also be judged by the law. Now, you'll notice in that verse again this idea of degrees. He says about the pagan who doesn't have the law and yet has sinned, that he will perish without the law. He says about the Jew that he will be judged with the law. There's a different standard for him. There's degrees of punishment based on the revelation that a person has received. And why will the Jew be judged even though he's got the law? Look at verse 3. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. See, it's not enough to have the law. It's not enough to know the law. An individual has to keep the law. I don't know how things work in your house, but if you're going through the house and your son's watching TV, and you say to your son, I want you to take out the trash, and he just sits there, you're going to say something like, son, did you hear me? And if he says, yeah, I heard you, and still sits there, you're not going to say, well, that's all that really matters just because you heard me. You see, you're telling him, you're asking if he heard you because the fact that he heard you makes him more accountable. And that's the way it is with the law. The Jewish people are given the law, and because they have that law, because they've heard it, because they know it, they're more responsible than other people. And then verses 14 and 15 are really a parenthesis and they serve to answer a couple questions that I think Paul realizes would come up at this point in time. One question would be, why are those without law still held accountable? And the other question that might arise here is, why isn't it just enough for the Jew to have the law? And he seems to answer both these questions in this parenthesis in verses 14 and 15. Notice what he says. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Now what he says here is that the Gentiles who do not have the law are a law to themselves. And the evidence of that law is seen in three ways. Number one, it's seen in their conduct. He says in verse 14, they do instinctively the things of the law. They haven't got the law, but if you watch them, they're doing instinctively those things that are in the law. Why? Because the law is written on their heart. So it's seen in their conduct. Secondly, it's seen in their conscience. When they don't do what's right, they feel guilty. Why do they feel guilty? Because even though they haven't been given the law written on stones, they have the law written on their hearts. They have a sense of that. And then thirdly, not only is it seen in their conduct and their conscience, it's seen in their contemplation. He says their thoughts at the end of verse 15 alternately accuse or else defend them. Every man knows the difference between right and wrong. He knows that in his thoughts. He knows that in his contemplation. And so he establishes the fact that the Gentile, even though he doesn't have the law, even though he hasn't been given the law the way the Jews were given the law, he is a law unto himself. Because of his conduct, his conscience, and his contemplation. Now, how does that answer the questions we raised? Well, first of all, why is a man accountable if he doesn't have the law? Well, Paul says it's because 
They are a law to themselves. They have the law written on their hearts. And that also answers the question of why isn't it enough for the Jew just to have the law, to have special privilege? Well, Paul says everybody's got the law. You got it handed to you on two stone tablets. The Gentiles have it also written on their hearts. Everybody has the law. So if you're going to base privilege on who has the law, everybody's got it. The Gentile has it written on his heart. And then in verse 16, he continues. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. On the day of judgment, God will not be impressed with your nationality, your background, your education, your denomination, your family name. He is going to judge the secrets of your heart. And that judgment will be without partiality. You know, my favorite teachers in school were the ones who told you ahead of time exactly what was going to be on the final exam. Didn't you like those teachers? Here's what it's going to be. A, B, C. Well, that's what God is doing here. He's saying you have got an ultimate final exam in terms of judgment. And he says, here's the way it's going to work. Here are the principles for judgment on that day. I am going to judge according to truth. I am going to judge according to degrees based on how much privilege and how much revelation you have received. Thirdly, I am going to judge according to deeds. And fourthly, I am going to judge without partiality. Do you know which teachers I liked very, very, very much? Those were the teachers who let you opt out of the final exam. Some told you what would be on it. Others said, here's a way that you don't even have to take it. See, God offers that option to us as well. Because later in the book of Romans, in chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question is, how do I get into Christ Jesus? And Jesus said it clearly in John chapter 3 and verse 16. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, God lays out here the principles of judgment. This is what's going to be on the ultimate final exam. And then he's going to tell us, you know, you don't really have to take that final exam. You can opt out of that final exam. You don't have to stand before Jesus as your judge on the day of wrath if you will bow before him today as your Savior and Lord. It's an either or. The judgment will be God's judgment and you will be without excuse. You will have no excuse and no escape. But having said that, God says I've provided a way out. And I invite you today to bow your knee before the Lord Jesus and let him be your savior rather than face him one day as your judge. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this passage, another passage that's really rather depressing because it just spells out how desperately needy we are. And yet we realize as we know what's coming in the book of Romans that the reason that you're making the background so dark is so that we can clearly see, see the brightness and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
And we recognize today that it is necessary. We are needy. We are desperately in sin. We are without excuse and we will not escape your judgment. But we thank you today for the gift of the Lord Jesus who took our place on the cross and provides us through simple childlike faith the salvation that you have given. And we rejoice in that today. And I would pray if there are any here today who have never bowed the knee to you, that today might be their day of new birth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.